Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we talk to the world's most creative people. I am your host, Sourdough, coming at you live from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. Your faithful, trusty, loyal, tireless, relentless host, Sourdough here. Happy to be back in the saddle. And man, do we have a great show for you today. A real VIP, the one and only Teresa Hubbard. Of Fractured Atlas, the CEO of Fractured Atlas is joining us today. And so I'm super grateful and excited about this conversation. She's so generous with her time and her and her energy and her information. You know, if you haven't heard of Fractured Atlas, this is please stay tuned because Fractured Atlas is all about empowering artists and uh, they do it in any number of ways. And so you're going to hear all about it. And Teresa is just a fantastic guest. I know you're going to love. So stay tuned. Before we get into it, uh, of course, I want to thank you all for joining and tuning in today for the podcast. We do this for you. If it wasn't for you, I'd just be talking into a mic and that wouldn't be any fun. So thank you for tuning in. Of course, please, you know, share this episode, like it, make a comment, follow us if you're not already following us uh, so you don't miss any upcoming episodes, all that uh, activity helps uh, make the algorithm gods happy, which helps us. And I'm grateful for your support in that way. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Lots going on. Lots of good stuff on the blog, notrealart.com. Be sure to go and check that out. I got a lot of good, healthy stuff for you. Free range, organic art stuff. Go get it. Unprocessed, homegrown, so to speak, organic, uh, locally sourced uh, from farm to table. Anyway, how are you guys? Great to be here together. As I said, we have the one and only Teresa Hubbard, who's the CEO of Fractured Atlas. Since joining Fractured Atlas way back in 2011, Teresa has provided support for more than 10,000 artists and arts organizations raising funds for their creative projects. She also develops educational resources for artists and collaborates with the engineering team over at Fractured Atlas to design really powerful web-based fundraising tools artists can use. Teresa also serves on the steering committee for the National Network of Fiscal Sponsors and is a regular presenter at conferences and festivals around the country. In 2016, she earned a certificate in arts and culture strategy through a partnership between National Arts Strategies and the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Policy and Practice. Man, that's a mouthful. She also holds a bachelor's of music degree in voice performance from Syracuse University and stays active in the New York Choral community by serving on the board of the New York Choral Consortium and by singing with the Oratorio Society of New York and Brooklyn Conservatory Choral. Choral. <laughs> I went to public school. I am, as I said, excited about this episode. You're going to love it. I was in New York recently for some meetings and Teresa and I met up for coffee and just had a fantastic connection talking about uh, our passion for you know, empowering and supporting artists 
uh, and for art in general and the creative arts more broadly. We just had a real, I think, a really wonderful connection and over that coffee. And, and then we circled back a couple of weeks later over the interwebs here and uh, recorded this interview and that I think you're going to love. So without further ado, let's get into this uh, fantastic interview conversation that I had with the one and only Teresa Hubbard, CEO of Fractured Atlas. Here we go. Teresa Hubbard, welcome to Not Real Art. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Oh my God, you're classing up the joint. This is fantastic. <laughs> That's very generous. Thank you. I feel you. like I caught a big fish. I mean, you know, it's you're so busy and everything that Fractured Atlas is doing. It's so inspiring and so amazing. You guys help so many artists. You're so damn busy. So I, I feel like I got lucky today being able to sit down with you. Thank you for coming. Yeah, of course. I really appreciate being invited on this show. This is it's a podcast that comes up very frequently in conversations about the arts world. And so it's an honor to be here. Oh, that's awesome to hear. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. You know, we sort of, you know, our inspiration really, I guess, was to create a show that helps artists tell their stories and promote their work. And that's generally what we do, but it's not even just artists, it's arts organizations. It's, you know, people in the art world. I mean, one of the things that I think we all need and artists need specifically is exposure, right? They need help with amplification, with boosting. And there aren't a whole lot of spaces that do that for artists. You know, it's really in mass. I mean, if you're a sports fan, you can go to ESPN or something. But where do you go if you're an arts fan? <laughs> yeah. Hey, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a generally a dearth of resources for artists out there for promotional purposes, for fundraising purposes. You know, there are a lot of tools that are created that can be used by artists, but there are very few in the grand scheme of things that are designed specifically for artists, which is something that I think, you know, Fractured Atlas tries to fill a gap in. Yes, yes, yes. And I know a lot of my colleague organizations do exactly the same thing. NIFA, Springboard for the Arts, you know, these these organizations that are creating systems and programs and services specifically for artists and based on the artist experience. A hundred percent. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating because I mean, at the end of the day, right, artists just want to make art, right? They don't necessarily want to have to worry about all of the messy, evil business stuff. <laughs> if they can, yeah. if they can avoid it. Right. But organizations like yours, like mine, I mean, we do what we can to add value and lift up and elevate. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not as if, you know, programs that teach about art, MFA programs, any sort of music program, unless you're specifically going for business in your secondary education opportunities, then you probably not going to learn about these things unless you seek it out right. specifically. Well, and so, yeah. yeah, the organizations like ours that exist, you know, post collegiate or post formal education, whatever that looks like, mm -hmm. are here to fill that gap to really try and provide the education and resources that may not be available through, through some of these training programs. Absolutely. And, you know, it is fascinating, right? Some of the gaps that exist within a profession, right? Or, or the education of a, of a profession. I mean, I'm thinking of, for example, you know, doctors, for example. I mean, the, you think about the importance of bedside manner, and communication and that interpersonal relationship that a doctor is supposed to have with their patient. And yet, until recently, medical schools never taught those soft skills, never taught communication, never taught, you know, that that sort of interpersonal stuff. And so the doctor could be the most brilliant doctor in the world. But if they're an asshole, <laughs> you know, you do, if, yeah. their, if their bedside manner isn't so great, you know, that's a problem. Right. And, and artists, you know, they want to make the art and they want to make the donuts and they just, you know, they don't, you know, and this idea of the importance of communication, this idea of the importance of of business, you know, gets oftentimes left behind either because art schools don't teach it or, you know, it's kind of a systemic issue. You know, it's sort of not baked into the system. And so anyway, so eventually, right, we learn that, oh, boy, I think I do need a fiscal sponsor. I think I do need a, a publicist or something. And, you know, and that's what I love about Fractured Atlas, because you guys, you know, at your core, right, you facilitate the funding as a fiscal receiver for so many amazing artists and art projects. And that's so important. I mean, you know, talk a little bit about not just 
where you guys are at today, but where you've come from and, and how you got here. Oh, sure. So Fractured Atlas was initially established in 1998. It was established as a performing arts organization and is clearly not that. So we've come a long way yeah, since right? then. We're very New York-based, and the events of 9-11 made the board and our founder take a really deep rethink of what was needed in the arts sector and whether performing arts was was really the direction that we wanted to go in. And ultimately, it was not. And what our founder, Adam, learned was that health insurance, actually affordable health insurance, was something that artists deeply needed access to. And so to start, he created a health insurance program that artists could use to have access to those health resources. And that was sort of the beginning of us becoming an art service organization. And from there, we started building programs on as we went through. Fiscal sponsorship, which is our probably the program that we're most known for, is the program that came pretty much immediately after, probably started around 2002 or so. And uh, since then, you know, for the last 20 years, 20 plus years now, we have been offering these financial tools that artists can use to have access to charitable dollars. You know, in the meantime, we've had a few other programs that have had a full lifespan. We had a business liability insurance program. We had a ticket selling software and CRM. We had a, a program that helped artists find unique spaces for their specific needs. Our health insurance program, in fact, also had a sunsetting moment. So we've really tried to stay as adaptive as we possibly can and to move in and out of the needs that exist for artists. We never want to replicate something that somebody else can do in the same way we can. So really what we try to do is figure out what that fractured Atlas special sauce is and apply that to the problem that we're trying to solve. The reality, while, you know, artists will always need to find space, they'll always need to have insurance, they'll always need to have um, CRM type tools and everything. One of the things that connects most of these programs is the need for artists to have access to capital. And fiscal sponsorship has been a really direct way for us to continue doing that over the years, even as the other programs have had a beginning and an end. Well, that's amazing. So for those of our listeners who may not know what fiscal uh, receivership is, let's explain that. Tell us exactly, Teresa, what fiscal receivership and sponsorship is. Yeah, sure. So fiscal sponsorship is a mechanism. It's also a legal relationship that allows for entities that are not 501c3s to have access to charitable dollars. And so if anybody's unfamiliar with 501c3, it's basically a charitable designation that's given by the IRS to certain organizations that have a mission that the IRS has said, yes, this is charitable. And so fiscal sponsorship itself removes some of that barrier that exists to getting those charitable dollars. Really what we do is Fractured Atlas is the charity that receives the contributions and then we issue those contributions to the artist who uses the program or arts collaborative or company. You know, we can sort of fiscally sponsor a lot of different types of activities, but it allows, we issue the funds to them as a grant. So it is a grantor-grantee relationship technically, but we're also there along the way to help them fundraise from individual donors to help them write their grant applications to really see them through the process of fundraising and be a ear to bounce ideas off of, to review materials, you know, just to be there for artists as they're going through this process that might be really hard to navigate. Right, right. That's so great. So, and, you know, as I was listening to you talk, it's, you know, I, I want to unpack that a little bit, too, because, you know, in terms of like how this sort of happens, you know, in real time and what have you, 
And so we know that, you know, being a 501c3 is a wonderful model for so many charitable causes. But as a practical matter, it's really time consuming and costly to set up a 501c3, right? I mean, just to get your applicant, your tax status, assuming you can get a tax status for the IRS, it might take eight, nine, 10 months, right, for that application to be uh, approved if it's approved. And so um, so many artists, you know, who are faced with this, well, you know, I have this patron, I have this client or I have this donor that wants to support this project that I'm doing, but they want, they ideally want that tax deduction. Maybe I should set up a 501c3. And then they look at that for a minute and they say, oh my goodness, I can't do that. I mean, that's going to take forever and it's going to cost a lot of money. And so suddenly they're in this position where they can't take maybe that, they can't accept that $5,000 donation because they're not going to be able to give a tax deduction to the donor and the donor is hoping to get that. So what you guys do at Fractured Assets is like a win-win. It's a win for the artist because you're a, the artist is able to work with you to sort of be their 501c3, so to speak, right? So that you can take in that $5,000 and then the donor gets the tax benefit and then the money gets goes to the artist for the work. And so it ends up becoming this just beautiful sort of win-win scenario for all the stakeholders. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, When we think about 501c3 status, yes, it is absolutely a a structure that a lot of charities benefit from so that they can get charitable dollars and, you know, operate to serve a mission. But it's not appropriate in a lot of cases. You know, I've seen arts, small arts organizations that, or even individuals say to me that they should get 501c3 status and the question has to be why, you know, is it about the longevity of it? Is it about the contributions and the ability for your donors to have a tax write-off? Because if that's the case, obviously there's another solution. But what I try to sort of talk through with someone who I have this conversation with is, are you working project to project or are you actually creating an institution that you want to live forever, because that's essentially what a 501c3 status is. You hand over your control to a board. You might remain the artistic director, but you know when you're ready to move on, that company still exists. So what are the deep asks that we, we need to really consider when thinking about becoming a 501c3, and are there other options? Obviously, I'm in the business of fiscal sponsorship, so I know that there's other options. And I recognize that fiscal sponsorship can be a really good tool, a really helpful tool, especially for artists, because you might be working project to project. You might need charitable contributions for your studio, your individual studio, but you're not necessarily operating as a charity in the United States. And so 501c3 doesn't really make sense. And yes, as you were saying, you're sort of borrowing a portion of our 501c3 status. We're able to extend some of the benefits of 501c3 to these grantees because we then provide oversight for the funds. You know, we make sure that they're being used for charitable expenses, which helps for grant funding. It helps for donors to feel comfortable making contributions, which, you know, the comfort thing is a whole donor behavior conversation. <laughs> That's probably a separate conversation. But, you know, the reality is that it makes a lot of people feel comfortable giving money to individuals. And I think that's changed a little bit with crowdfunding because there is a trust that goes into putting your work out there and collecting money from a lot of people that has started to change donor behavior a little bit. Yeah. And it's fascinating to think about the drivers for that change because, you know, it's sometimes about the larger culture as well. And it feels like the arts, so to speak, the arts writ large, I mean, the general consciousness among the public around the importance of the arts and the arts, it it sort of feels like the appreciation, the consciousness for the importance of arts is at an all time high is what I'm trying to say. And I wonder to what extent that that's helping get people, you know, help people relax and say, yes, I want to support this. And, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to worry too much because this is important. Yeah. And I think this is connected with a labor movement that's going on in the arts right now, where there's a real push for people to pay 
artists, pay them for the work that they're doing, pay them for the art that they're consuming. I think a lot of art consumers, for lack yeah. of a better word, yeah. don't really recognize that that's what they're doing. You know, when you watch a show on on TV, you're a consumer of art in that yep. case. And, you know, we pay for cable or we pay for Netflix or something like that. So we think it, it feels like we're doing our part, but there's really so much more that goes into that and so much more that the artists put into it that they're not necessarily being paid for. So I think I've lost track of your initial question. <laughs> but yes, I think that there is this consumership that exists. And I'm not sure I've seen an increase in donor contributions or a change in behavior since people have started to realize that. But because we have this labor movement happening simultaneously, I am seeing very interesting conversations happening yes. about the value of an artist, the value of their time, the value of their work, and so on. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, it's such a fascinating thing because sort of appreciation for the value of the arts, that sort of has a direct relationship to, you know, one's education or one's familiarity you know, with the role that artists play in the economy, right? So Ernst & Young, a few years back, I think maybe you and I chatted about this before, they released the study with the United Nations and a, you know, another arts organization to quantify the value of the arts to the global economy across 11 verticals, okay? So performing arts was one of those verticals, visual arts, you know, music, TV, movies, books, gaming, you know, like all these different verticals. And they valued Ernst & Young, which is tier one global accounting firm. I mean, this is, you know, in the United Nations. So these are reputable <laughs> organizations, right? <laughs> they valued these creative industries at $2 trillion right? To the global economy. Okay. Now that's a, well, first of all, I would argue on some level, that's probably underperforming on a lot of levels because I mean, you know, whatever, but regardless, 2 trillion to the global economy, this is the economic impact that artists and designers and creatives and, you know, that they have. And so, yeah. So as people become aware of the value of artists and designers and understand the importance of how, you know, the arts impacts our daily lives. I mean, everything we use is designed by a designer. You know, the movie we watch on that Netflix during the pandemic, that was all made by artists. You know, every day we're consuming cultural products and, and consuming the arts, you know, whether we know it or not. And and I think it's changing. Like the, the labor movement, you know, it's interesting. I'd like to hear more about that because I feel like artists are starting to stand up and say, you know what, we're valuable, we're important, and we deserve to be paid a fair living wage for our expertise. Yeah, absolutely. And we're starting to see resources pop up around this too. There's a number of programs piloting around the country for guaranteed income for artists where, you know, being an artist has access to, you know, the $500 or 3000 you know, whatever the actual case, the actual program allows, they're given unrestricted funding and said, this is for your life and this is for your art. Just go make art because we know money is a barrier. We're also seeing programs that are helping artists with contracts where artists and individuals sort of sole proprietors in general with contracts and making sure that wage theft is no longer an issue or helping them navigate through wage theft. Because, you know, there are these stories of artists who sign a contract, maybe they get their the deposit and then the person they deliver the work and then they never get the second payment. And yes. That's an example of somebody not valuing an artist the way that they deserve to be valued, especially since they are performing a service for that person. So it is an evolving movement, and it's really fascinating to see the different services and different programs that are popping up around the country to help address some of these really prevalent issues that have been that have loomed in the arts world for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and artists are the first line of defense, right? I mean, educating them, informing them, helping them feel confident 
you know, and empowered to stand up and say, no, 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 no. You know, like this is how we do it or this is what I deserve. And and I can't deliver that until you pay me in full. And, you know, just these kind of standard business practices that that artists, you know, oftentimes are uncomfortable with, you know, for various reasons. But but it's absolutely essential to protect the value, you know, because, I mean, on a certain level, if I work for free, then I devalue all of the other art and artists that are my colleagues. Absolutely. Right. And that's part of the, we got to be a unified front together because, you know, just because I give a, if I work for free, then it just devalues everything for everybody. Yeah. There's this common idea in the arts that you are doing it for your passion and therefore you shouldn't get paid for it, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's, it's asking us all to sacrifice our livelihoods for the thing that we're passionate about, that just doesn't add up to me. Why don't we instead focus on paying people for the things that they are passionate about and the things that they are good at and the things that they really love doing and contribute to society and contribute to the economy? It's really unfair that, you know, we see a lot of it in the nonprofit world too. It's like you should be paid, your time is worth less because you care about the thing that you do. And that just does not compute <laughs> yeah, to me. Yeah. I've told artists before, I say, you know, what would happen if, you know, if you ask your doctor to treat you for free or or your lawyer or your accountant or, or whatever, you know, everything comes with a price. Now, it is interesting, this idea of, you know, the sort of the exploitation, because it gets down to exploitation, right? And the power dynamics that happen. And, you know, it, it would be easy to think, for example, I mentioned doctors, it would be easy to think that maybe, you know, doctors are are making a lot of money getting paid. But, you know, they also sometimes are expected because they're a caregiver, you know, and they're doing God's work that, you know, they should you know do it charitably and do it for free if the person can't pay. And, you know, and, and there are exceptions to every rule. But but I feel like, you know, whether it's a you know, doctor or an artist, I mean, there are certain professions where, to your point, like if it's your passion or if it's your calling, oh, well, you know. Cut me a deal. <laughs> yeah. That's not, that's, not, that's not good. That's not healthy. It's funny that you mention doctors in this way because you're totally right. You think about doctors who are on call over – I saw a call recently on – I want to say it was on social media that said, should on-call jobs be illegal? And I thought that was really fascinating because my gut answer was, yes, I remember working retail and being on call. And you clear your day to maybe be called in, which completely robs you of opportunities to go make money elsewhere or to fill that time with something that is fulfilling to you or something like that. But then I also started thinking about doctors and how doctors are on call and we sort of expect that of them because of the charitable aspect of the work that they're doing. And it's just such an interesting conversation to think about how we treat different professions differently instead of thinking about the value of an hour and the value of a person's time and what they can contribute to that time. And yeah, I mean, we can learn a lot, I think, from various industries and how they value people's time. But you're right, it does sort of permeate across across industries as well. Well, now we have a, you know, this new revolution in tech around AI. And, you know, what's that going to do to lawyers, doctors, accountants, you know, coders, programmers, you know, so many of the so-called knowledge workers or, you know, professions that you think might have been protected from disruption via AI, you know, are now sort of really feeling the threat. And it's interesting. It'll be fascinating to see what happens. I know a lot of it's very trendy right now to be up in arms about, you know, AI and the arts. But but the reality is, I would argue that this creates an opportunity for a new appreciation for handmade, man-made, you know, products and artwork specifically, because there's a real divide there. Well, do you want this art that was made by a machine or do you want this art that's made by human hands? You know, so I know a lot, a lot of artists who are very freaked out and it's very freaky. It's amazing. But I think there's a lot of, it creates new spaces and new opportunities for artists and the arts to stand up and say, no, 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 we're something truly unique and special and different. Yeah, I really hope and feel that that could be the path that we go down, sort of an appreciation for an appreciation for the handmade. It's almost like with the growing slow fashion Mm -hmm. trade and how a lot of people 
feel like with the with the proliferation of fast fashion and how you know inexpensively these clothes are made and and even made available to purchase there's something really meaningful about going back to the idea of creating clothing uniquely and slowly and yeah <laughs> with intentionality that's the yeah, that's really right. what i'm going for well and, and building things it that last beautiful yeah, right. Yes, building things at that last, exactly. And that are pleasing to look at. And yeah, that don't fall apart, like you're saying. So I think we've seen it happen already, where there's this disruption in an industry, and there's a sort of a movement to appreciate what it used to be, or what it could be if it's built with more intentionality as well. So I think if we can use that as an example, then yeah, I, I do feel and hope that that can happen with AI and technology as well. And, you know, honestly, we don't know what the possibilities even are for artists working with technology. Right. Because there's so much more yep. future to be had yeah, in that yeah. space. There could be such innovations that artists come up with that could really contribute to this as well. And just maybe even come up with a new form of art. Hundred percent, right? I mean, it, that's why I've been telling people. It's like, look, guys, these are just tools. It's a new medium. You know, I think any real savvy kind of computer scientist, robotics person, you know, would suggest that you know ultimately this is not about AI or robots running the world. It's about a collaboration between humans and technology so that we can, you know, innovate or create new things or solve new problems because, you know, it's that combination of the, you know, shall we say analog and, and high tech or the analog and digital that, you know, is going to make for some really interesting outcomes. I mean, artists are it, man. I mean, you know, like if artists can't take these tools and do interesting, innovative novel things, then who can't? And so my money's on the Good artist. Point. Yeah, absolutely. There do need to be a, some changes, I want to say, in the way some of these things are applied, because as we know with AI right now, they're stealing a lot of artists' work. And yes. when you think about the AI image generators that you plug words into, they're scouring mm -hmm. the internet and taking images that may not be available for free, you know? Right. And so we're already talking about copyright infringement. We're already talking about exploitation with this technology. And if we don't get in fast enough or soon enough, it can just keep going. You know, yeah. it'll continue to exploit artists. So I think there's a both and scenario here. I really hope that we can build these things with artist consideration in mind and also that artists can take, can take what comes out of this and run and create something that, you know, many of us never could have imagined. Absolutely. Well, you know, that's a great segue into a, a fun question. I'm put you on the spot because, um, you know, Fractured Atlas works with so many amazing artists doing so many amazing projects, whether it's in the visual arts or the performing arts or, you know, and everything in between, you know, and you can't have favorites, you know, we love them all. I know this, <laughs> but when you think about some of the great, you know, kind of interesting, fun projects that, Fractured Atlas has helped to facilitate over the years. What comes to mind? Ooh, that's a good question. I will be honest because I'm New York based. A lot of them are also New York based. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want it to seem like I'm biased toward a specific location. It's more just we I love had New access. York. Come on. Yes, <laughs> yes. I don't mind I had being access proud. to the other ones. Yeah. One of the most meaningful experiences I've had was from a company called Two-Headed Rep that was fiscally sponsored by Fractured Atlas. Their whole thing was they would take classic texts and retranslate them or reimagine them and then pair it with something a little bit more modern. And I saw a retranslation of Tartuffe as part of this that just blew my mind. It was beautiful. It was hilarious. It was just such a... I think I went in with 
not knowing what to expect. And mm-hmm. so it, you know, there was, there are so many possibilities for how it could blow me away. And I had seen Tartuffe in the past and, yeah. you know, my brother was an actor. I saw him in, in Tartuffe. So I had some idea of what this show was and this just, it blew my mind. It was beautiful. It was such a good experience. So that's one that for me sticks out. We've had a couple of other projects that have sort of blossomed into something bigger than when they were with us. There is a public art project called Photoville that happens in parks, I think around the city. They're usually one time a year. And it'll be full installations of these photo projects that are just available around the city. And that one, to me, every time I see it, you know, I'll be on a bike ride and I see the Photoville exhibit and I'm like, this is exactly why I do what I do so that these art projects can be funded so that people can have access to them so they can ask hard questions and make people think. And it's just always a lovely, lovely thing to encounter for me. Isn't that wonderful when you have that sense of of delight and satisfaction with your work? And then, you know, and especially when it has some sort of social goodwill, social benefit, community benefit kind of aspect to it, right? It's just, you know, it, there's even a deeper gratitude there and appreciation for when you when you feel like your work is really touching people. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I would say it was much easier for me to get out and do see a lot of the work that our projects were doing before the pandemic. So I'm at the point where I need to start building that muscle again and, and really making a point to go out and see some of this work because it does, you know, having that feeling over and over and over again just adds so much light and so much joy to my life. And it's something I, you know, I need to put back into it. It's something that I really need to start focusing on again. Right. What I love about those examples, is, you know, I mean, obviously they're very analog and very kind of traditional and that, you know, they're, you know, either it's photography or whether it's performance art or whatever it is. But, you know, we were talking about AI and digital and tech. I mean, can you think about some tech related projects that you guys have been uh, part of? Yeah. You know, a lot of those, I think I can speak more generally. I don't mm-hmm. know if I could pull one out specifically, sure, sure. but something that I noticed, especially early in the pandemic was a transition from theater projects to the podcast space, actually, or radio show space. Mm -hmm. And a lot of theater programs or performing arts in general turned to video because that seemed like the most comparable medium, I suppose. But we saw a trend of projects turning to podcasting and radio shows that was really interesting to me because it harkens back to you know, the old radio shows that from generations ago, you know, before we had the type of media that we have now. So it was such a lovely callback and also really made me think, it challenged me particularly to think about how theater is different than radio. And how do you build a story differently? How do you build a script differently? I'm not a theater artist. And so I don't think I ever could have come up with answers to these things on my own, but they are, it was really such an inspiring way to think about how to take your medium from something that is more analog to something that is more digital without doing exactly the same thing everybody else is. Some of the other projects that we've had have been platform-based, like they'll provide tools for artists or... Yeah, I guess most of them are providing tools and resources in a platform setting. So whether it'll be, what am I thinking about? (laughs) Um, I have that problem all the time, don't worry. (laughs) Stuck there for a minute. I wish I could think of specific instances of the platforms, of the resources that they're offering, but some of them will be money related. Some of them are more about... um, creating a community for artists Mm -hmm. and having that community available online, Mm -hmm. especially so that it can connect people from all over the world or the country. Well, by the way, like I'm sorry to interrupt, but you know, that really begs this question I hadn't thought of, which is the fact that, you know, to what extent does Fractured Atlas think of itself as a platform or community, you know, because I mean, the one thing about being an artist, it can be often is a very lonely 
kind of existence. And, you know, it's often, unless you're in New York or LA, where there's sort of density of population, maybe a larger community of artists, largely speaking, there's a diaspora of artists. We're sort of spread out everywhere. And it's it's hard to find that community. And it's hard to feel, you know, it's easy to feel like you're alone. And it's hard to feel, you know, find your community. And, and, and Fractured Atlas, you know, at its core, it seems to me, is a community, is a platform. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you asked this because there are a couple of other things outside of fiscal sponsorship that we do, mm-hmm. one of which is actually maintaining an online community for artists. We call it the Creative Outpost, and it's really intended for artists to get together and chat. We'll host events there every once in a while. But the whole goal is for artists to be able to connect with one another and to see each other as resources. One of the things that I think has been most toxic in the arts world in general is this sense of competition when really we are a community. We're a community who can work together, who can learn from one another. We might even share audiences, and that's not a bad thing. That's, you know, somebody likes theater, somebody likes theater, or if somebody likes music, they like music. It doesn't matter necessarily who it is that they're seeing. They might be interested in seeing multiple groups. And, you know, the same thing goes for visual arts. If somebody is a consumer of visual art, they likely want to see multiple different artists. Yes. So we can't be so protective of our audiences because... One, we are keeping our the rest of our community from developing their audiences as well. We should really think about working together and, and seeing each other as resources. So that's the goal of the Creative Outpost. We share resources ourselves there, usually as a sort of a first look. You know, we'll release it to our, our Creative Outpost members first and then to the larger community or to our fiscally sponsored projects. So yeah, it's definitely worth checking out if you're an artist. It'll open you up to a whole new community of artists. But, you know, similarly, and this relates more to the fiscal sponsorship piece, we are a platform. I mentioned that sort of Fractured Atlas special sauce before. And one of the things that makes us special is the fact that we have technology resources. All of our projects have access to a fundraising page that they can collect ongoing donations, you know, like monthly donations. They can also collect one-time donations. We have crowdfunding technology so that they can run a time-limited and gold-limited campaign. Everything that we do, we do through technology, with the exception, of course, of course, of coaching, because that's really more personal. But most of our resources are available online so that an artist can come manage their fiscal sponsorship when they have time. They don't have to do it between the hours of nine and five every day. It can be whenever they think that they need to request money or make an update to their profile or anything like that. That's so exciting. I mean, you have a whole suite of tools for in resources for artists to leverage and use to fund their projects. And, you know, what a gift, you know, that Fractured Atlas is to so many artists out there. And, you know, so I'm curious, though, I have to ask here because we're, you know, we're so money focused in in our culture, right? So, like, what's the biggest sort of budget that you guys for a project have ever processed? And I guess, you know, for the listeners, like, is there a minimum and a maximum, like, in terms of the range of kind of donations and sponsorships that you guys have worked with? We have no money requirements. We do charge a fee, and Mm -hmm. it's essentially a, you know, platform fee or, or a fee that we charge for the labor that goes into sure, got to pay the bills. Absolutely. The yep. Exactly. That's 8% currently. Mm-hmm. The otherwise we don't have a minimum or a maximum. You know, we have projects who come to us, they apply for fiscal sponsorship and they're not ready to fundraise yet, but they wanted to check this off. So they mm-hmm. know they have their fiscal sponsorship in place. And, you know, maybe in two years, they decide now's the time for me to fundraise. And that's when money starts coming in. Right. And that's fine. You know, we like to be for the project what they need for us to be. Right. We like to be that adaptive. We want to make sure that we are giving them what they need, you know, within the, the means of what we can actually provide or mm-hmm, without, mm-hmm. within those boundaries. But we don't have any requirement that says you must have a $15,000 or, you know, $100,000 or whatever budget. 
Right. We want to be available for anyone at any phase of their journey. And likewise, there's no maximum. In, in fact, as funders, in particular institutional funders, are starting to recognize the value of loosening their purse strings, I wouldn't say it's like really hit in a way that it's going to last yet, but we're starting to see some movement toward some institutional funders trying to give a little bit more money. We, we are able to accommodate millions, if not multi-million dollar contributions or grant Wonderful. contracts as needed. Yes, please. I'll take a million. Come on. I know. Hand, hand it Let's <laughs> spread the I love. I know. That's amazing. Wow. How great. And by the way, like the idea that you are sort of sensing that maybe more institutional, more conservative institutions are kind of starting to relax a little bit. You know, it seems like maybe you're starting to feel like there's some change and a new trend emerging here that will benefit the arts and artists financially is, is a wonderful notion. I hope you're right. That's exciting. Yeah, and I hope I think a lot of that comes from the activism of artists. You know, you were mentioning that there are a number of artists who are right up there making the arguments in their favor about labor and what they're worth and everything related. This is related. A lot of artists were up there advocating for the arts, saying, we don't just need, you know, 10%. We need 100% of our funding. It's obnoxious that you're making us fill out a different application for every single application that exists out there. And you all, by the way, you all being the foundations, are likely only giving 5% or so of the money that you have because that's what the IRS requires every year. But how much more do you have to spend? And how much more can you can put that into the arts ecosystem and make sure that it's it's well-funded and that that artists aren't the ones who are suffering because right. they're not well-funded. And by the way, this is a conversation that's not unique to the arts scene. Right. Nonprofits in general are pushing funders in this direction. But I think artists have a unique position because, of course, they are also the ones being paid by this. You know, they're not necessarily working for a, a, a charity that's getting grant funding, getting paid that way. They might be working on their own and, and doing work individually. And so they and their lifestyle is so affected when things are underfunded. So I'm really hoping, really hoping that this was not just a COVID related change and that it's something that can extend into the future. And I hope that the funders, especially those who were dedicated to this over the last few years, are able to convince their colleague funders to move in the same direction, to see the benefits, see how much impact they're having, and really hope that trickles through the rest of the sector. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's very exciting. I'm tempted to make a crash joke about how corporations don't pay their fair, and sh fair share in taxes. So they need to help out one way or another. So fund some charitable causes, people. You know, this is really important stuff. No doubt, you know, as we were sort of getting ready for our little chat today, I was reminded that you've been with Fractured Atlas quite a while now. Like, so did you get literally go from intern to CEO? Is this your journey? Not quite intern. But close. <laughs> I was a part-time administrative assistant at Fractured Atlas when I first started in February of 2011. So I've been here for a little more than 12 years now and have basically held every position in between. <laughs> it's been quite a journey for me. I've learned so much and I've had I really jumped on every opportunity I could to learn something new, and it has just worked out for me in a lot of ways. And I, I find myself, I think of myself as being very lucky to have those opportunities that I could could jump on. So I'm grateful for them and think that it it has offered me so many, for lack of a better word, opportunities, I'm going to use the word again, to learn skills that I don't think I would have learned at other places. Like I helped to develop the product, the fiscal sponsorship technical tools, and 
not, you know, literal coding or anything, but I was part of the stakeholder team that helped to develop that. And I'm not sure I would have had that opportunity in other places. I also had the opportunity to run a program and manage teams. And I recognize that's something that you can do in other places, but with the technical experience as well, maybe not something that would have been easy for me to move into. So yeah, it's been a journey. It's been hard. It's been fulfilling. It's been fun in a lot of cases. I've met some of my best friends in the world at this organization. So it's, yeah, it's really been a wonderful 12 years for me. Yeah. And I just love that journey. I love, I love the story that you came in at a, you know, entry level, we'll call it that. And now you're CEO. (laughs) This is, it's amazing. That is the American dream right there. (laughs) Yeah. It is amazing. And when I think back to those early days, I just think about how different Fractured Atlas was at the time and how much it's changed. And it's almost hard to believe they're the same organization sometimes. Right, right. Well, and that's a story about adapting to the needs of artists, right? Like you guys have just continued to pivot and shift as you needed to, right, to be relevant and be and really add value to artists' lives. And you've been there for much of that journey over the years. And I just love it when people are able to kind of find their calling and realize their potential and and do it in one organization. Like, you know, isn't that isn't that wonderful? My wife's a lot like you. She sort of started in her industry and, you know, as a reader. And then, you know, now she's big wig. And, and it's funny because she started her career at this company. And so now she's a big wig at that same company. And when she pulled on to the property that first day as the big boss, the security guy at the gate was the same security guy that was there 20 years ago, right? When she was just like a little peon and he said, welcome back Channing, you know, <laughs> it's just, I love this, the fact that people can find their calling and stick with, grow with an organization or maybe come back to an organization, but it's such an inspiring thing. And I just love your story. Now you, as an artist though, your roots are in music, correct? My roots are in music. I, I was actually talking to one of my coworkers about this yesterday. I have complete inability to create something from my brain visually. My entire calling growing up and to this day has been through the performing arts. So, you know, when I was a kid, I did a lot of uh, did a lot of theater, always sang in choirs, um picked up instruments along the way. I've played, you know, piano and clarinet, but my focus has been on singing for most of my life. And I went to college and got a degree in voice performance. And since then have tried to remain really active in the choral scene in New York, just to keep that passion going. So I sing with an oratorio society, the the oratorio society of New York, and which fun fact was the choir that Carnegie Hall was built for. Because Andrew (laughs) Carnegie's wife sang in the choir. Amazing. Right, right, right. There's a lot of history there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I sing with the Brooklyn Conservatory Chorale and, you know, have sung at churches throughout the city. And I also serve on the board of the New York Choral Consortium. So that sort of brings together all of my hats, my my choral singing hat. And it's a membership organization. So that draws a lot on my work at Fractured Atlas, as well as the National Network of Fiscal Sponsors. So there's just a lot of a lot of these things coming together in that one position as well. That's so cool. Isn't it wonderful to be able to have had a life in the arts. I mean, whatever it is, right? And and you know, I I came from a musical family too. Music is such a wonderful sort of art form to have grown up in on some level. Of course, I can't sing a lick, but it's so great to see that you are so involved on multiple levels there. I have to ask though, so you have a cello behind your right shoulder. Like <laughs> like who's playing the cello? I will be honest, I took one YouTube cello lesson (laughs) a few years ago, and I could not pick it up, but my partner is a songwriter, and he can pick up any instrument whenever he needs to and make it make whatever sound it needs to make. Don't you hate those people like that? (laughs) That's amazing. 
It's really incredible. And so, you know, he is the one who got the cello because he is and he's needed to use it several times for, you know, the songs that he's writing. He did production music for a little while. So any any of those scenarios. Gotcha. I promise there's a piano on this side. Uh, right. <laughs> a piano and a child and somebody's maybe a nautical uh, person as well because i see the <laughs> sailboat in the back as well <laughs> yeah there's some woodworking in our families for sure so there's some <laughs> there are those trinkets around as well oh man that's great you know i have to ask you know i was reading your very impressive bio and you know it says here that you're under certificate in arts and culture strategy through a partnership between the National Arts Strategies and the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Policy and Practice. Wow, that is impressive. (laughs) You know, talk about that experience. What did it teach you? I think the thing I took away most from that was the value of strategizing. And I don't know if I would have said that at the time because it was just so much information at the time. You know, you're you're learning about logic models, theories of change, and all of the things that go into strategic decision making at an organization. But now that I'm in this executive position, I really am starting to understand how all those pieces fit together and what strategy means more broadly than building a theory of change or building these logic models. Not that those aren't helpful tools. They absolutely are. And I love reading other people's logic models. (laughs) You do that for fun, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Just, you know, with a bag of popcorn. (laughs) A little light reading. Yeah. (laughs) But it really helps me now understand how all of the pieces come together and how every piece of an organization contributes to the whole, which when you're in it is sometimes really hard to see. It's hard to see how other teams or other departments work is connected to your work or how your work even sometimes is connected to the greater goals or strategy of the organization. And so It was really nice for me having taken that and then led a team afterwards to understand sort of how it works within a team or a program and then building up from there how it grows. So yeah, you know, it's been several years since I did that. Probably, I think it was 2016. It was seven or so years ago. But I remember really being excited about those strategy conversations and it's been very helpful for me in the meantime. I've always found it fun to like talk strat, you know, like solving a problem. Like how are we going to solve that? You know, how do we get from here to there? It's a strategic decision, a strategic conversation. And, but you as CEO, you know, you're constantly navigating the very fluid dynamic world we live in, you know, and trying to be strategic in a fluid dynamic environment. It's, I mean, that's the hard part, right? That's how they call it work. And constantly adjusting, constantly pivoting and trying to, you know, keep the course, you know, and the changing winds and all of that. But, you know, COVID certainly was such a gut punch, you know, to our culture and to business and to the economy, to the world. And, you know, in Fractured Atlas, obviously, as so many or all the organizations out there, I mean, had to adapt and what have you. And you recently became a completely distributed organization, right? So people are largely working from home and there's very kind of decentralized, all not just all over New York, but all over the country. I mean, you as CEO, that to me, that sounds, you know, like a very exciting challenge. And it must be hard sometimes and to be strategic when, you know, not everyone's under the, in, under the same roof in the same space. So talk a little bit about the challenges, the good and maybe the less good around, you know, leading a decentralized a distributed team. Sure. I'll start with the good because I firmly believe that having a distributed organization, allowing for people to work from home in particular, is a net good. Yes. <laughs> you know, there are always going to be things that are more challenging, but it's to me a net good because people have more control over their lives. The people who work for you have more control over their lives. They're able to take a break in the middle of the day and go for a walk or go to the grocery store or do their laundry. You know, they're able to do the things that help their lives keep moving without having to try to fit them into the few hours a day that they're not sitting in an office when they could be resting or they could be socializing or, you know, they could be making art, you know, 
it allows for space for people to have more control over their time, especially when you don't have to factor in a commute. So I think as far as mental health goes, as far as as far as people having agency over their lives goes, it's always going to be a net good. Plus, you are able, I know what I found when I started to work from home, I was more productive from the sense of I was able to check the things off my list that I needed to do, which aren't always, you know, doing tasks. (laughs) Sometimes it's reading. Sometimes it's just sitting back and thinking without having somebody come into your office or to your desk and asking you a question. You know, obviously, we we try to have communication streams open through Slack and, and, you know, tools like that. But I have a little bit more control over the time that I can actually commit to doing various things. And so for me, that felt more productive. Also means it's easier for me to work in things like a walk around the block, if I need to go for a run in the middle of the day, something like that, that contributes to my physical and mental health as well. Some of the challenges that we've come across have to do with collaboration and sort of communication, ease of communication. So we moved fully virtual or fully distributed in January of 2020 with the full intention that we'd be able to get together once, twice, once or twice a year to build the connection, the human connection that we felt like we had in the office and to collaborate more in person. And because the pandemic hit very soon after that, those plans sort of went out the window. And now we're in a place where we want to make sure that we are factoring in People's comfort with traveling, comfort and ability, you know, there are many reasons why people would not be able to actually travel. So what are we able to do to build connection and to make sure communication flows seamlessly while being in a virtual space? Because being in person may not always be an option and we may not want it to be an option even. So that's the hardest part. And, you know, those are things that are hard to do in an office too. So it just is a different setting. It's a different platform. We just need to be a little bit, think a little bit differently and be creative in how we address these, these concerns. And, you know, we've this year have started working with an organizational development consultant called Art and Praxis, and they are helping us work on some of these things because they are necessary, I think, for us to have a thriving company and to work together effectively. Yeah. Yeah. I know you hit on so many important things and it's such a amazing time, you know, technology has done so many amazing things, you know, and it's a double-edged sword, you know, it cuts both ways. But the fact that you and I are able to do this interview over the internet, I mean, you're in New York, I'm in LA, Right. And the technology has risen to the occasion. And I mean, the rise of the personal computer started that right on a, on a very small level. But now because of the communication tools, whether it's Slack or Zoom or whatever the case is, we can work remotely and, you know, have flexibility. I mean, to your point about morale, like you didn't use the word morale, but what you were getting at is morale. Right. So Mm -hmm. like as long, you know, it's hard to lead a a team with low morale. And if the mental in morale is kind of has a direct relationship to mental health. And if your team can keep take, you know, administer self-care and self-love and and treat themselves well and be mentally healthier, then their morale is going to be better and they're going to be, you know, easier to lead and more excited to, you know, go, you know, accomplish whatever goal. And and so, yeah, so there's huge upside and, you know, and there's challenges, right? And the, you mentioned it, communication and collaboration, like how, because sometimes being in a room, you can't beat that, like that's really hard. And so much of communication is nonverbal. So, you yeah. know, how does that work? <laughs> you know, and so we're going to get there. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, some sort of hybrid model is absolutely the future. But as long as you guys are getting together, you know, and everybody loves a good offsite, you know, it's like, you know, whether it's like once a month or once a quarter or whatever, like that's, you know, to build that camaraderie. And, and so much of it is also about the nature of the work that we do and whatever the case might be. And, and certainly the important work that Fractured Atlas does lends itself so well 
you know, to working, you know, in this virtual model. And, you know, I'm just, Teresa, I have to admit, I literally have lost track of time. I'm, I'm looking at the timer. You and I have just been chopping it up now for over an hour. And I feel like we could easily go for three hours more. I want to be I respectful know. of your time. This is wonderful. I'm so grateful that you were willing to come on and, and talk about the great work that Fractured Atlas has, has, does and has done. And I know we left so much sort of unexplored and undiscussed. And we'll just encourage people to go to the website and, and read and learn and engage with you guys and work with you guys because what you guys do for artists is so important and so valuable. And I'm just so grateful for you, Teresa. Thank you so much for taking time yeah. and coming on and doing what you do. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's always a blast talking to you. I feel like you're right. We could go on for hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, next time we will. Next time we'll do Joe Rogan style. We'll just do like a three hour uh, <laughs> session of some kind. That'll be fun too. Well, listen, uh, by the way, fair warning, I may be back in the city in May. So, you know, we'll have to figure out a time to, you know, get together again when I'm there. But in the meantime, my friend, you have a beautiful weekend. Do we have any fun plans? What's going on? Uh, I'm going to try to get together with some friends tonight and maybe do my taxes. Is that fun? No. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, wait, I, isn't there I'm, a I'm service training... that Fractured Alice offers that do that for you? <laughs> um, you know, that would be a, a great opportunity for us, I think. Um, but I also, I'm training for a race right now. So I'm going on an 11 mile run on Sunday. That's my yes. like, big weekend activity. Awesome. So you're a runner. I am. I'm newly a runner, actually, <laughs> probably about for about a year now. I've Congratulations. Been That's amazing. Thanks. What race are you running? I'm running the New York City Half Marathon in yes. three weeks. Oh, coming right up. Coming right Maybe up. Two weeks. Yeah, it's in March. Yep. So you're on your taper now at this point. I am. My taper starts on Sunday after my okay. long run. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, look at you go. Congratulations. That's great. Isn't it wonderful? Thank you. It is. It. is. I've only done one race and it felt great. So I'm hoping that this one also feels great. <laughs> <laughs> Most of my running happens, uh, you know, on uh, when I'm running away from the cops, but that's a whole nother podcast. Uh, we, we, <laughs> we won't go there. Well, Teresa Hubbard, thank you so much. You're the best and uh, more to come, my friend. Yes. Thank you so much. It's been a blast. Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review and share with your friends on social. Also, Remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Peugeot and Desi Deloro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.